I'm Todd Jones, recovering from 30 years as a sports writer. Thanks for joining me as I sit down with some of the best sports writers of our time who knew the greatest athletes and coaches and experienced firsthand some of the biggest sports moments of the past half century. We'll share stories behind the stories, some we've only told each other. Pull up a seat on Press Box Access. Jared Bell was a people person. He actually looks you in the eye and listens. Old school people skills have long made Bell one of the best informed and most trusted writers covering the NFL. He's built up 40 years of league sources, and as USA Today columnist, he isn't shy about holding the league and its biggest names accountable. They know that Jared Bell knows, and he knows that in journalism, it all starts with knowing people. Hey, Jared, welcome to Press Box Access. It's a pleasure to have you on our show. Hey, Todd, how you doing? Um, thanks for the invite. Appreciate you um, showing a little bit of interest in a brother and <laughs> having me uh, on the show. This is this is pretty cool. I like what you're doing. Oh, great. Thanks. I'm just real happy you've joined us. I know you're so busy. You're still covering the NFL. You've been doing it since 1981, and you've been at USA Today as the uh, NFL columnist since 1993. Uh, you're former ESPN NFL insider, member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame selection committee since 1997. Uh, since that year, you've also served on a media panel to select Super Bowl MVPs. You've participated in the selection of the NFL Centennial team on a blue ribbon panel. And I, I love that blue ribbon, right? There's not <laughs> many blue ribbons anymore. You know, Paps won a blue ribbon in 1893, and they're still proud of it. So, you know, you were yeah. on a blue ribbon panel. <laughs> yeah. That, hey, Todd, that was pretty cool because I'll tell you a couple of the other people who were on that committee yeah. um, that you've heard of. One, Ozzie Newsom. He was yes. on that committee. Two, Bill Belichick. We've heard of him. Oh, he yeah, was, that guy. Yeah, yeah, he was like the only active coach who was on the committee. John Madden was on that committee, the late wow. John Madden. Um, so it was it was pretty special to be part of that mix. And, yeah, yeah um, that, you know, that's you, a real tribute to you and your career. You know, I'll conclude you on that. Yeah, thanks. It, it was uh, it was definitely worth the the effort, and I learned a lot and had some really good exchanges. So yeah, that that was a that was a, and that's one that you know just kind of came out of the blue. I wasn't I didn't know what they were doing and didn't um, anticipate it, and then it happened, and we had a good time with it. Right. Well, so the NFL knows you as an authority for all these years. I know you as someone who caused my life to be hell for a few days in the mid nineties. Now I know you won't remember this. Uh oh. But I was at Wilmington College at the Bengals training camp working for the Cincinnati Post. And Jared Bell from USA Today came into town and you talked to Jeff Blake about something. You had some type of Jeff Blake scoop. <laughs> and basically, that story came out the next day. It was like you threw a grenade in the training camp and left town. Yeah. You know, being a national guy, you, you kind of helicopter in oh, yeah. and, then, and then you helicopter out. Oh, yeah. Um, and that, that's happened, you know, a few times where, you know, I've gone to places and um, uncomfortable covered, you know, something or had somebody talk to me and reveal something. That's usually what we're talking. And that's what happened, what happened with Jeff Blake. And he was critical, if I remember correctly, of um, David Shula and the, uh, the, you know, the head coach at the time. 
And it, yeah, it caused a stir because you're talking about your quarterback and there are a couple other players. And I think, you know, Dan Big Daddy Wilkinson being another one <clears throat> um, who kind of had the same theme. And and so, um, yeah, that's that's kind of <laughs> part of the. Um, the job is to to go in and you, and you always try to get the you know the best players. I mean the best stories with the star players um, mm-hmm. and, that are definitely going to um, you know resonate with a lot of people. So yeah, I've, I've kind of had that happen a few times. Well, I've now, always <laughs> I've always had a lot of respect for your career, but I've always had a little bit of a scar <laughs> <laughs> because of that day in like 1995. But uh, it's just a testament to you and your reporting skills and and why you. You've been on this uh, beat for for so long. You know, I want I want to ask you about this. When you think about covering America's favorite sport for four plus decades, what comes to mind first about all those years? Yeah, it, you know, it, it's pretty incredible because um, I've seen the NFL just really grow into that you know behemoth that it is on the sporting landscape and you know obviously um the money is so much bigger now in the sport not so much for the sports writers but yeah right <laughs> you know you talk about the value of the franchises the the value of the players and the contracts we see and um you know, I, I kind of had a, a front row seat to some of the, you know, really all these years, but just to kind of see it evolve on so many levels and to to get to the point where, you know, so many people actually just care about the NFL, talking about fans. And, and um, I don't know um, if you could really expect that any industry or sports league would keep its popularity to continue to grow when you think about some of the issues that the NFL has dealt with. And so I I feel fortunate to cover a beat that people care about. So, you you know, people cannot get enough of it, man. And Todd, you know, when I started in 1981, there was an off season, right? The the games were over, the Super Bowl was over, and you wouldn't see the players again until... After the draft, they'd have like a three-day mini camp, and that was pretty much it. And then you see them again in training camp. And the players back in the the 80s, and especially the early 80s when I started, you know, they they all had – you know, off-season jobs. You know, obviously the salaries weren't what they they are now, but they had off-season jobs. And you you talk to the players like, hey, what are you doing? Oh, I'm going to be a distributor for Anheuser-Busch. Oh, I'm going to, you know, mm-hmm. work for the Chamber of Commerce. You know, all these guys had things that um, they looked at as being, um, you know, bridges to their lives after football. And so that was that was kind of part of the culture back then in, in terms of the players, but also reflects kind of how um, the, the sport evolved and kind of how the sport, um, you know, was situated even from a media coverage standpoint. You know, the players would work out, but they would work out on their own. Now, uh, it's a year-round deal. And yep. the NFL has, you know, been intent on capitalizing on its popularity in the off-season, you know, with, you know, the draft being such a big event and the combine. I remember going to the first, you know, my first combine um, back in the 90s, and there may have been, you know, 15 reporters there, okay? And now, <laughs> yeah, there's, there's like a 1,000. And, and I'm, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe 800. Maybe I'm inflating the number a little bit, but it, you know, there are hundreds of reporters now. And so just to see the growth, 
you know, in that regard, just really reflects kind of how the NFL has, you know, taken it, it itself to to really, you know, market itself and, and keep its presence uh, almost on a year round basis. You mentioned the growth despite all the different issues and problems that come with growth, come with more money. Uh, come with more attention. And one of the issues uh, was diversity. And I want to talk more about that. But one thing about that topic of diversity I find interesting about your own life is that you kind of got exposed to sports journalism by being around hockey, of all things, <laughs> which which isn't a sport that you think of as being a diverse sport, right? No. So you were, you were born and raised in Detroit, and yet hockey kind of introduced you to what sports reporters are all about. <laughs> exactly. Um, but the hockey thing is interesting because I grew up about 10 blocks from Olympia Stadium. It, 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 it no longer exists in Detroit, but that's where the Detroit Red Wings played, um, you know, for many years. But, you know, Todd, the thing that I did was, so I probably was about nine years old, maybe, mm -hmm. and I would go up to Olympia. I went up to, I went up to Olympia one Saturday morning and, um, and wanted to get a glimpse of the Red Wings, right? Mm -hmm. And so there was a security guard there, a guy named Art. <clears throat> and um, he said, okay, you can come in and watch practice, but you've got to sit in that seat right there where I can see you. And that's how small the stadium was. Here's a security guard who is at the, at the gate, and he can see the seat at the edge of the rink, nice. okay, from his right. spot. And he said, okay, I just want you to, you, you can do that. So I go back the next week, and same thing. He says, you know, you can go there, uh, but make sure you stay there. You can't, you know, you can watch practice. So it was just me. You know, the players would, would be practicing and they'd see me sitting there. And they'd, you know, smack the, the stick against the glass and, you know, <laughs> shoot a puck against the glass and, you know, um, you know, wave and laugh and so on and so forth. Well, as time went on, every Saturday morning, I'd go over there. Um, I, I kind of got away. Art took his eye off me. <laughs> you know, he got comfortable. <laughs> and it was like Barney <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And Art took his eye off me, and I, I went down uh, towards the bench area, and I got to meet the equipment manager and the trainer, and 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 so I was a fixture there on Saturdays for a while, um, just like that. And so one thing led to another, and and I remember one of the assistant coaches, a guy named Billy Day, he he asked me if I knew how to skate, and I was like, no. He said, we're going to get you some skates. So Billy Day got me some skates, and then I. Mm -hmm would go on the on the ice at Olympia after the team practiced. And that's how I learned to skate. And actually nice. some of the players, you know, even would, would stick around. And, and a couple of those guys, I remember remember Gary Bergman, who was a, a, a defenseman for the Red Wings. He taught me how to back skate. Um, and then years later, it was like, I remember Marcel Dion, Hall mm -hmm. of Famer, you know, one of the greatest players in NFL history. He taught me how to, how to, how to fight. <laughs> how to, how, how to, and, and, you know, Marcel Dion, I don't even know if he ever got in a fight in the, um, in the NHL, right? He won, like, the Lady Bing trophy for sportsmanship. And he taught me how to, you know, when you get into a tanglement with somebody, you pull the jersey over their head. Um, <laughs> Alex, Del, Alex Del Vecchio was, was phenomenal. Um, right, and, so I kinda, and then he became the coach and general manager yeah, for a few and, years. Yeah. And let's pick it right up there. Um, 
Del Vecchio was the team captain. And so now we're talking like 1973, 74, 70, yeah, probably around 74, I guess. And he becomes the coach and then and GM. And he came to me one day and he said, hey, I got I got a job for you to do, right? Um, there's a woman in the PR department named Kathy Best. And, and Kathy had polio. She was um, bound to a wheelchair. And, and Alex said, I want you to, to help her out. You know, so after, mm-hmm. so I'm in high school now. And it's kind of like, okay, after school, come and see what Kathy needs. And it was, it was stuff mm-hmm. like, you know, run this requisition request over to concessions and stuff these envelopes and so on and so forth. Then I worked in the press box and, and so that kind of got me into the PR wing and gave me something to do. And Alex, so it wasn't a real job, but Alex would pay me out of his pocket. Really? Um, yeah, oh yeah. Alex would, would, would pay me out of his pocket. Here, here's 20 bucks. You did a good job this week. Nice. <laughs> you know? and, and, and Del Vecchio, I always remember, he was like the first adult to let me drive a car. You know, my mom had a car, you know. I my wait, mom, wait, 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 what kind of car was it? It was like a um, a Lincoln Brome Continental, you know, one of those big, you know, grown man, granddaddy cars, right? Oh, Jared, I can see you rolling through Detroit with that. Well, it's funny because he's like, I want you to go get us some hamburgers. And it took me like an hour, an hour. To, he's like, where were you? I mean, he, he knew. He was glad to see me because the car was in one piece. But yeah, the first time he's like, he wanted, he sent me to go get hamburgers. And I, I, I probably took about 30, 40 minutes in the hamburger places right up the street. And, uh, <laughs> but I did some joy riding. But yeah, Del Vecchio was the first adult to ever trust me with a car. And um, so that was a great experience. But to the point that you, that you uh, mentioned, it really exposed me to this entire sports industry, which you can transfer from hockey to football to baseball to basketball mm-hmm. right. in, in that, you know, there's stadium operations, um, there's coaching, training, equipment managers, which, and, and that was another thing I did. I was like equipment manager for the Detroit Junior Wings. I mean, um, for a couple years there. So and, you got the peek behind the curtain of all oh, this. Exactly. Yeah. And, and got to see a lot of things. But at some point, you know, I remember somebody said, well, do you want, do you want to go into, you know, being a trainer or equipment manager. No, 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 no. I want to I want to get into the media. And, you know, like I said, worked in the press box for the Red Wing games, passing out, you know, stat sheets and stuff like that. And I just thought the reporters were pretty cool. And so then I go off to Michigan State and, um, you know, tried to, you know, make it work from there too. Well, you certainly did. I mean, you graduated in 1981 from Michigan State. And a few weeks later, you leave Detroit or leave East Lansing, I should say, yeah, or yeah. Michigan State, and you end up in Dallas, Texas, of all places, and you started working for the Dallas Cowboys Weekly in 1981, the team yeah. publication. Um, what was that like to all of a sudden go into the professional world? And here you are, you're actually writing now. Yeah, well, I, I, I had a great benefit. Uh, my, my cousin, my late cousin, Larry Bethea. Um, oh, yeah, great player. Yep. Yeah, well, he yeah, he was a Big Ten's MVP in in 1979. Yeah, so, yeah, there you go. That was my freshman year. And, um, and so I followed Larry to Michigan State. Larry was the reason, I mean, it, it, you talk about always having 
people. I've, I've been so fortunate, Todd, to have people in my life at different points that have served me so well. And I just think it's, you know, I'm a spiritual man. And I just think it's a gift from God that mm-hmm. I've, I've had these people. And so I moved to Dallas on a Monday. It was the day after the Cowboys got clobbered in San Francisco. I think it was 45 to 14. <laughs> and, um, you know, so not a, you know, not a pleasant Monday in Dallas, but that was the day I moved to Dallas. And I remember um, th- th- that that day, like it was yesterday because, you know, on a Monday, the, the players don't go in until the afternoon, right? They get the morning right. off and, and la- I think Larry had to be there about two. So he had me um, drop him off and, you know, get the car. He let me use his car, right? And it's like Del Vecchio. And, uh, <laughs> and I remember like um, waiting for him uh, like around five or whatever time they got out. And I'm in, the, I'm in his car in the parking lot and Drew Pearson comes comes out and he comes over and I had never met Drew and I meet, I meet Drew Pearson right then and there. And then Drew was like, Hey, um, you know, he had, so I told, he, you know, he knew I was Larry's cousin because I told him, but he knew I was a relative because I'm in Larry's car. And he says, hey, tonight we're going to do this thing over at the Playboy Club. Uh, two Tall Uh-oh. Jones and I. Yeah, two, <laughs> two, he's like, yeah, Two Tall Jones and I, we do this Monday night football party on, on Monday nights and you, you you can come. You don't have to bring your cousin, right? So I told Larry, he said, no, no, I'm coming. So we, <laughs> so that was my first night in Dallas. So that first day I meet Drew in Tutal and then the next day I go to the Cowboys uh, headquarters and they hired me for a part-time job with the Cowboys Weekly and just writing features. But it was a, you know, it was a good opportunity to get my foot in the door and by the end of the week, um, the Dallas Times-Herald, uh, one of the daily papers there, now defunct, um, they brought me aboard and they gave me a, you know, they didn't just immediately hire me, but they, you know, they gave me some assignments to cover high school f- uh, football games and, you know, liked what they saw. And then a few weeks later, they offered me a, a full-time job. And so that was how I broke in to the newspaper business. So I had the full-time job with the Times Herald and then I had the part-time job with the Cowboys Weekly. And a few years later, ended up going full-time with the Cowboys, um, and that you know really prepared me for going to cover the 49ers and for the rest of my career. It was a great well, foundation. Well, when you showed up in Dallas in 1981, the Cowboys. I mean, they're coming off the decade of the 70s where they became America's team. Yeah. I mean, that, they were one of the iconic franchises of that decade, along with Pittsburgh and Oakland and Miami. Oh, yeah. yeah. And so you, you're at you're at Dallas with this iconic team led by Tom Landry, one yeah. of the all-time great coaches. And you were pretty much there until Landry you know, was forced out in 88. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I was there until 1990. So I was there for the first year of Jimmy and Jerry. But the the thing that was cool for me, and it's probably a little different, and I know it was different than than for most people because my cousin played on the team, right? And so a lot of the players took an interest in me as a person that they they probably wouldn't and, and not to say they, they didn't have rapport with other media because they, they did that, that Cowboys team um, was loaded with stars and um, but and they were very media savvy you know most of them you know I mentioned too tall he he probably was one of the least engaged with the media but he always 
you know, had some words of wisdom for me, and, and especially like after my cousin uh, committed suicide in, in 87. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but there were a lot of guys. Butch Johnson was always good, and he, you know, tell me, you got to dress for success. And, um, <laughs> you know, Ron Springs, oh my goodness. Um, uh, he was just, a, you know, a treasure for me. And what we would talk about so many different things. Tony Dorsett. Tony Dorsett, <clears throat> uh, one time early on in my years, he said, you know, he says, I know you're a young man just getting started out. He says, hey, anything you need from me, just let me know, even if you need money. I'm like, T, I can't Whoa, really. Wait a minute. Wait a yeah, minute. He's yeah, going to yeah, pay you yeah, off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> He's like, even if you need some money, I know you're young and you're starting out. Because I was living with my cousin. I lived with my cousin for like the first six weeks. Now, now Coach Landry, um, I like a lot of people, man, I used to um, really just, I gleaned so much wisdom you know, from him, just going to his press conferences and they do, you know, obviously after the games, but also during the week and and just there are things and the players who played from for him would tell you the same thing. But um, but Coach Landry, yeah, he, he had some, you know, philosophical principles that, you know, just kind of always, you know, stuck with me. And, you know, he was no nonsense. We know that. Um, but there was one incident with, with Coach Landry, a couple. Uh, one time, the, the Cowboys were really, you know, in a in a tough spot, and um, you know, I think I asked Landry something in his press conference, like, could this team beat Oklahoma? <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> wow. Yeah, he Throwing just, the heat from he, row three. Yeah, and he and he just he just smirked, and he said, boy, he said, you know things are bad when your own newspaper <laughs> <laughs> He's <laughs> slinging mud at you. I mean, and I was just, you know, being a ham that day. Well, Landry was the face of the franchise for so long. I mean, he started coaching in 1960, and up until his last season in 1988, it was the guy in the suit and the hat, and, yeah. you know, the stone face, and that was the Cowboys, right? And then all of a sudden, Jerry Jones buys the team, and in 1989, um, Jimmy Johnson is put in as coach. Yeah. What was that transition like to go from Landry and the Cowboys to all of a sudden Jerry and Jimmy? Yeah, it was it was interesting and it was it was fun and I feel you know for everything that's gone on in my career that that was a great benefit to kind of witness you know that turnover. I remember going to see Coach Landry when he was you know packing up his office right um, and and Jerry came in with you know so much energy and all the controversy because of you know the way they they bounced Landry and brought in Jimmy Johnson right and so. Um, to see all that was was pretty amazing. And then on top of that, I kind of got to know Jerry better than most people. And I'm, so I'm working for the club. And one of the things Jerry said, and, and so the, the whole organization is just flipped on its head, right? You know, a lot, and, and not only did Landry leave, but a lot of other people left and mm -hmm. front office people. And, you know, Jerry's bringing in his people. And it was, um, you know, it was cold-blooded in one way, but it was also football. And I remember one of the players said, you know, for, you know, all the years that Tom Landry would cut players and it would be cold-blooded. Well, the same thing happened to him and that you know and, and the guy wasn't saying that just to you know to be um you know to, to denigrate Landry he was just trying to say that's kind of the cold business of the NFL so to see that was interesting so the, so they they had so they called it the Saturday night massacre when, right. when when this whole thing jumped off and they had a press conference on Saturday night with Jerry and and um you know he was like I'm you know I'm gonna be involved in this thing from the socks to the jocks and so on and so forth so Jim 
Jimmy's press conference was like that Tuesday. So on that Monday, I went to um, went to the locker room, talked to several of the players, veterans, obviously. It's like, hey, what do you guys want me to ask Jimmy in the press conference? And I started getting all this stuff from the players. Um, like, yeah, ask him this, ask him that, you know, about the workout stuff and, mm-hmm. and you know, job security and the, the things that, you know, players would be interested in. So we get to the press conference and um, I get to a point where I finally get some, you know, where I get some questions in and I'm just firing off on Jimmy. What about the veterans and what about the workout deal and what are you going to do and so on and so forth. And Jimmy was cool. You know, he answered them all, so on and so forth. Um, and and that, that was that. So I go back to my office and then a few minutes later, the phone rings. And Uh-oh. yeah, Uh-oh. yeah, it, it, it's Marilyn Love, um, who was Jerry's, um, executive assistant. She just passed away um, uh, last month, but, you know, back in, in, in early to mid-March and, you know, her, her soul rest in peace. But she calls and says, you know, Mr. Jones would like to see you, okay? And so I go back to, to Jerry's office and I had never met Jerry, right? But, you know, he's he's now bought this thing. And, um, and Greg Aiello told me from his perspective how it how it went down because Greg said that he was in there with Jerry and they were talking about the press conference and he's like, who's that guy asking Jimmy all those tough questions? And and um, and Ayala says, oh, he works for you. He works for me. Yeah, he's with the Cowboys Weekly. Get him in here, right? <laughs> and so, so that's when I get the phone call and I go in there and... Um, and Jerry's like, boy, you were really giving it to Jimmy. It was like, mm, mm, mm. Yeah, he's like, you know, <laughs> pumping his fist. You would, you you would jabbing him. You got him. Oh, he's, he's like, I like your style. Oh, right, right. <laughs> he's like, I like your style. I love it. I, yeah. So that was how I met Jerry the first time. And then like the, the next day, Marilyn calls and she says, hey, Jerry's looking for a barbecue place. What, what do you recommend? Because they had just moved in from Arkansas. Right. And, you know, with him and a lot of his key people. And and then a couple days later, she calls me back. She says, um, where's the dry cleaners at? Jerry doesn't have any clothes. He's been here for five days. And, um, you know, we need to get get laundry. Where do you go? And, and, you know, where can we go? And I was like, okay, there's a dry cleaner right around the corner from Valley Ranch and blah, blah, blah. And then it was like, and she called me another time and she was like, Jerry's going to have a little reception for some of his business partners. We need to get a printer. You know, who do we go to? So those first few days after he purchased the team, Marilyn called me multiple times just for little stuff that, you know, people needed when they're, you know. <laughs> it sounds like it wasn't America's team, it was Jarrett's team. No, no I would not, <laughs> not say that at all. But it was just, that just was a human thing. So then one day, Marilyn calls, so about two weeks later, Marilyn calls, and she says, Jerry's going home to see his, his folks. He wants you to go with him. I was like, oh, so his folks, and they're both deceased now, but they were living in Springfield, Missouri. And so, um, so, and so Marilyn told me, she says, he didn't, he said, you don't have to come and write a story. He just wants you to come. He likes being around. He likes you and all of that. I said, okay. Um, of course, I'm going to get a story and I got my notebook and all that stuff, right? So I did do a story, but, you know, it wasn't like a condition, oh, come write a story on me. It was like, you know, come right. hang out. And so he was um, dedicated a YMCA that he had built for his to, to, to honor his father. And so um, I hop on his Learjet. It was me, him, and Gene and, and his pilots. And that was it. And we fly to Springfield, Missouri, and, and his dad picks us up 
at the airport and the, at the and in the hangar. You know, so Jerry hops in the front seat. I hop in the back seat with Gene, mm-hmm. and his daddy just kind of sits there. And he's got another one of those big cars. Like I talk about Alex Elvecchio's car is another one of those big grandfather cars, right? But I'm in the back seat with Gene, and Jerry's in the front seat, and the car's not moving. And Jerry says, "Come on, Daddy, let's go. Let's go." He says, "Son." No. He <laughs> said, what's wrong, Dad? What's wrong? He said, he said, um, Jerry, we have company. He says, you get in the back seat. Jared, you come sit with me up in yes. the front. <laughs> yes. And so there it was. And we go to um, Jerry's sister's house. And that's where I met his mom and his sister and a bunch of other relatives are there. But this was the first time that they had seen him since he bought the Cowboys. Okay. Those couple weeks. Right. Because mm-hmm. as right. you can imagine, it was a whirlwind for him. So mm-hmm. that was pretty cool to witness. Um, you know, they were saying stuff like, we saw you on CNN. In, you know, stuff like that. So, so I spent a day with them. We go to lunch. They did a dedication of the YMCA and just had a, a wonderful time. And at the end of the day, his mom, she uh, she says to me, she says, Jared, I just I have one thing to ask for you. And I said, what's that? I said, take care of my boy. Would you do that? And I'm like, me take care of him? <laughs> <laughs> and his mom just seemed to be so sweet. His dad was cool. And, and I was able to even just, you know, pick up just from seeing him and his dad in a and talking to his dad, um, you know, his dad was a was a businessman. He he owned a, a, a grocery store. That was one of the things that he did. And mm-hmm. he talked about how he would, you know, bring get people in the store by having promotions on Saturday. If that doesn't sound like Jerry, you know, right. <laughs> that, that is it. You know, we got a band here on Saturday and it's going to get people into the, the store and do their shopping. And it was pretty cool. And I remember one thing, I, the last thing I'll say from that, that visit, I remember I remember um, uh, Jerry's father saying, okay, so are you going to draft Troy Aikman? And and I remember Jerry saying, do you know how much money that boy wants? <laughs> and, <laughs> and his dad was like, Jerry, you're in the NFL. The, the, you know, the, the market is set. You got to kind of deal with that. You're going to have to pay, but that's kind of what it is. And, and he's like, I don't know, but okay, okay, dad. But yeah, we, we're going to take Aikman, that sort of thing. It was, it was funny just to kind of to see uh, that exchange. Ready to up your game and learn more about the thrilling world of sports betting? Introducing Double Down with Breslow, the ultimate podcast about the business of sports gambling. Join me, James Breslow, and a long list of expert guests as we dive into the art and science of the sports betting industry. Evolving regulations, technology enhancements, and the meteoric rise in the number of players makes this sector the fastest growing and most intriguing in the world. Unlock the business secrets from many of the industry's most recognizable C-suite executives, including famous odds makers and influencers every episode of double down with breslow is packed with insider tips deeply skilled analysis and in-depth discussions don't miss out on the ultimate resource for mastering the business of sports betting listen to double down with breslow on the evergreen podcast network or wherever you listen to podcasts that's double down with breslow the business of sports betting podcast well, you you got to you got to experience a lot of behind the scenes things and see how the machine works, uh, just as you did when you were a teenager. So you do it all these years with the Cowboys, and then and then you leave Dallas after that year of 1989 with Jerry and Jimmy, and you transition yourself into covering a team but not working for it. And now yeah. you're going out to the Marion Independent Journal in Marion County, California, and you start covering the San Francisco 49ers, which is 
now the team in yeah. the NFL. They're coming off two straight Super Bowls. Uh, but yeah. like the Cowboys, when Landry and Jimmy transitioned, they were kind of in transition, too, when you showed up. They were going from Bill Walsh to George Seifert, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, George Seifert had been there as, well, had been there for, for several years as defensive coordinator. Then Bill, when Bill Walsh um, uh, retired, uh, Seifert took over. So they had, it was, it was kind of, you know, yeah, I don't, seamless is probably not the word, but there was a lot of continuity that mm-hmm. was there from, you know, the Bill Walsh years and some of his coaches. I mean, Mike Holmgren, um, who grew up under uh, Bill Walsh, uh, was still there. And then he ended up going to Green Bay and Mike Shanahan ended up, um, you know, replacing him as, as a coordinator. Um, but yeah, that was, that was a, a, a great opportunity for me too to cover this team. And just like the Cowboys in the 80s, the 49ers had so many big personalities. Obviously, you know, Montana and Steve and, and Steve Young was the backup when I first got there. But, yeah, think about you know, that, right? Yeah, Steve yeah, Young exactly. was the backup. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, Montana, Jerry Rice, Ronnie Lott, Charles Haley, um, you know, Jesse Sapolo, that was one of my favorite guys. He was the center on that team. And um, it, was, it was cool to to kind of get in the mix with them. Now, that first year, Todd, I got zero scoops, okay? And there were like 12 12, uh, newspapers that covered the 49ers. That was kind of the way it was because you had all these papers, just like my paper, the Marin Independent Journal was a smaller paper. We had like 50,000, you know, circulation on Sunday. By contrast, the Cowboys Weekly had (laughs) 100,000 circulation, by the way. But anyway, you know, but I I got a chance to cover a team on a daily basis. And, you know, um, the, the 49ers went for the three-peat. They didn't get it. And I didn't get any scoops that first year. But that second year, um, and this is what led to USA Today. Um, so the paper that I worked for was owned by Gannett. So anything that I wrote, it went to the Gannett wire, and they distributed it to the you know the other Gannett papers around the country. But it's like 75 papers. So Gannett News Service, they had their own wire service. Right. And so the paper in Nashville, you know, the paper in Nashville, if they wanted to pick up my 49er story, they could, et cetera, et cetera, right? And so over a three-day period, I had um, a scoop about Tim Harris, who had been obtained in a trade from the Packers, um, landing in jail. And he and when he was in Green Bay, he had some issues off the field related to alcohol. Well, he gets arrested mm-hmm. before he even plays a game for the 49ers. And That's a problem. Yeah. And so <laughs> I got the scoop on that. And then... Um, uh, a, a couple days later, the 49ers lose to the Falcons. So now they're two and four. It's like the worst start that they've had since 82 or something like that. But instead of going to George Seifert's press conference, I went straight to the locker room where I found Eddie DeBartolo stewing oh, in the corner. Wise move, wise yeah. move. And, and DeBartolo pretty much, I, you know, I said, hey, I want to get your reaction to this. And he says, um, he says, what the F do you think is my reaction? <laughs> That's the first thing he says to me. I said, yeah, it can't be pretty good, you know. And then, it's not good he, when the owner's dropping F-bombs on yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And so what I found out later is that he had, like, cussed everybody out in the in the locker room before I got there. And But even before I went to Eddie, I tried to walk around the locker room and get, talk to some players, and nobody would say anything. None of my guys, like Jamie Williams and Steve Young and Jerry Rice, you know, guys who would, were very approachable, 
you know, especially, you know, for me, for sure. And nobody would say anything. Everybody, no. And Eddie, so I see Eddie over in the corner, and that's when the exchange happened with him. And here's what he said, Todd. He says, you know how I feel. He says, you write what you think I feel, and I'll say I said it. <laughs> and I just started, <laughs> I started laughing. I was like, Mr. D, you know I can't do that. I said, but if you want to make a statement or two, I'll, I'll take it. But I can't just make up. I know you're pissed off, but I just can't make that up. Right, right. And then, so he said, okay, okay. And he gave me this phenomenal quote about how heads were going to roll. He didn't care if it was the coach, the G. You know, he's he just started slinging. And so so a few minutes later, all the other reporters come in the locker room from the press conference. And he's still in the corner stewing, right? Mm-hmm. And so they surround him and they ask him, you know, about his reaction. And he was just as calm and peaceful. Oh. And he says, you know, at times like this, we need to stay together as a family. Oh, and so, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, yeah, I'm standing on, I'm at the edge of the pack like, yeah, Eddie, you tell him that. That's so right, Eddie. So, Keep talking so, that way. Yeah, so, so the next day, everybody's got the reaction from Eddie with the calm, peaceful guy. And I've got, you know, stripped across the front of the paper, you know, the Bartolo rips for 49ers. And so, <laughs> so that was cool. And then the day after that, I got another scoop that Joe Montana, who um, had had these elbow issues and he was not playing at the time because he was trying to, you know, get through his, his elbow injury. Well, I had the scoop saying that he was, had decided to have surgery that night you know it's actually you know that Tuesday and I had it um in, in Tuesday's paper. Montana surgery is set for tonight. And so in four days, I had like three major scoops after going the entire first year on the beat, not having a scoop. And and, and that just really kind of you know taught me about you know, the whole thing of of kind of getting into the mix, into the flow, you know, as a journalist, as a beat writer and kind of how you have to, you know, put your time in for people to to trust you with with stuff and get to know them. And and then, you know, um, you know, be able to, you know, uh, develop content from there. But it's like the chessboard. You got to figure out like what. You know what pieces move what ways? Yeah, and how they yeah. all fit together. Yeah, oh yeah, right. oh totally, totally. And um, and then USA right after the Montana story, USA Today called, and uh, Gene Polisinski was the managing editor, and he was like, "Hey, um, we want to bring you in here. <laughs> you know, during the off season, we got a program where we, you know, where other Gannett papers um, loan us reporters, and we think you'd be great here." And so I went after the season and spent like four months at USA Today and they had me covering primarily, you know, college basketball and a couple couple other things, but um, that led to them, you know, saying, okay, you know, we, we want you. And I'm like, I want to go back and cover the 49ers another year and I did right. that and then they, they, you know, and then they still, um, you know, had a job for me the, the next year. So that's when I started at USA Today and then it was national. But I will say this, Todd, um, it was great for me at that time too to have all of those sources that followed me from the Cowboys and from the 49ers. So, Jared, you, in 1993, you start covering the NFL for USA Today. Mm-hmm. How different was it to go from one team to all of a sudden now you're covering all the teams uh, and the league in general? Uh, what was the challenge there for you? Yeah, it was getting to know people and, and getting you know to know people um, in different spots. And, you know, when you cover 
the, the league from a national standpoint, you're usually going to be assigned to the hot teams, the hot stories, the hot games. So not complaining about that at all, but just like, um, you know, when you go into um, New England, you know, the local guys there are the ones who, you know, have the sources and, and, um, and know the people. And so there was just the, the a challenge of getting to really know different people. Now, you can't know everybody, but I came up with some strategies, Todd, that I think helped. And and one was I decided um, that I was going to um, try to get in with certain big time players when they were coming out of college. Right. Mm, and right. so it always became very important for me to get to know some of these guys and write about them. And usually, you know, when guys are coming out of college and they want their draft stock, you know, to be, you know, solidified, you know, they're open. So I started going to visit certain, you know, every year it'd be one or two guys and I'd go visit them on their college campus or in their hometown. I remember interviewing Michael Vick at a McDonald's in in, U, in Newport News, Virginia. Um, Charles Woodson uh, went to the University of Michigan, you know, went to the University of Michigan to see him and, and, and that helped lay the foundation. So now when you see Charles Woodson and he's with the Raiders, he, he knows you. you know, he knows you by you name. working relationship. Exactly. Right. You develop so, that. Yeah. yeah. So that was one of the strategies. And the other strategy was to, um, and I got this from, you know, reading Sports Illustrated and talking to some of my Sports Illustrated buddies, Mike Silver being one. Um, you know, you go and you try to have dinner with people because you want to get some some access. So a classic example. So I, I would I would go someplace and it would be like, okay, let me take, you know, take you to lunch, right? And and Troy Aikman, um, Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin, you know, my cowboy guys, you know, we've we had to have a lot of meals over the years. With, with Aikman, it was, it was um, you know, at training camp in the cafeteria. And, and even mm-hmm. for some of the other guys, it was that. But, you know, you, you go to a town and you say, I want to, you know, have a meal with you. But Bruce Smith, is the most is the most classic example of how this works because I I didn't know Bruce right <clears throat> and but obviously he was you know one of the top players in the NFL at the time and so I called the PR guy and I said hey I'm coming in for the Jacksonville game in like two weeks can you ask Bruce Smith if he go to dinner with me if I come in town like a day early and right. so the PR guy calls him back he says yeah Bruce said he'd do it. Um, he just wants to bring his family. So I look in the media guide while Scott Birch told is on the phone and I see Bruce, his wife and their newborn baby, Austin, who was like six months old, and eight months old or something mm-hmm. like that. I say, sure. Yeah. 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 We, I can do that. So he says, okay, yeah, I can handle three. <laughs> yeah. 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 You know? And so, um, so Bruce says, you know, meet me at Jim Kelly's restaurant at whatever time on Friday night. So I get to the restaurant and the people will say, oh yeah, yeah, we're expecting you to, we put you in the back room, private room. The, the Smith party is waiting for you. I walk Uh-oh. in the room, Todd. Wait, 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 Smith party. I walk in the room and there's like 10 people in there. And I'm like, <laughs> whoa. And, and I just, I said, wait a minute, you said your family. Yeah, that was the first thing I said. I looked up, I said, you said your family. He said, this is my family. That's my <laughs> sister. That's my brother-in-law. That's my nephew. <laughs> this is my cousin over here. And he said, they all came in for the game. It's like, oh. <laughs> 
okay. And yeah. so we, we had this we had this great meal, and the bill comes at the end, and and um, it's kind of like okay. So Bruce was like so great, you know. He was like okay, let's do it like this. Let's just split the bill. Uh, in half, right? Because, you know, you didn't know, but, you know, you, you're here, you know, with USA Today interview, <clears throat> we split it. So we split the bill. But I'm going to tell you, Todd, that was, that was money so well spent because every other time I went to Buffalo, Bruce would take me out to lunch, breakfast, dinner. He's like, whenever you come to town, let me know. And then I'd visit with him in Virginia Beach. And, and we became... You know, really cool, at least from a, you know, a reporter, um, player standpoint. And, and, right, right. and over so many years, man. And, you know, he took me to Jim Kelly's house twice for the, you know, Jim Kelly would have a party after the game, after their home games. And all the team would, you know, all, most of the team would be there. And that's how I met Jim Kelly and met Jim Kelly's father. And, um, you know, so that access you don't get. And then right. consequently, or maybe, Consequently, is not the word, but um, uh, um, also what would happen is that you know a Thurman Thomas or Andre Reed or somebody they they said well if he's if he's good with Bruce then yeah sure I'll talk to him and and you know give him some stuff and and so on and so forth. so you just kind of build your network like that and and Austin you know Austin now is like. Shoot, almost 30 years old now, but I remember every step of the way. Hey, how's the little baby doing? And the baby grows up and then oh, the baby yeah. goes to, to um, you know, high school and college. And now he's out of college and he's, you know, working in real estate. You know, so you just get to know people and have relationships with them. And I remember one way it paid off was um, I was talking to Bruce one day and there was a lot of conversation about his contract and if he was going to um, show up at training camp. And so uh, I talked to him and I was like, well, you know, Bruce, um, you know, this might be your last big contract. You're in your prime and, you know, so the market's here, so on and so forth, got a big deal, so on and so forth. I said, yeah, so, you know, what are you going to do? I don't know. I don't know. Right. And so he calls me back a couple of days later. And he says, I'm not going to training camp. No. I'm holding out. I say, like, what? Yeah, I wanted to give you the story, right? And so he gave me the story, and, you know, we had a front page of USA Today. But I said, Bruce, um, yeah, what, what, you, you weren't sure the other day, you know, what changed your mind? He said, talking to you. <laughs> you gotta be kidding me. He said, nah, he said, not just you, but I talked to Thurman and Andre and, yeah, you know, right. the, the, yeah, Daryl sure. Talley and some of them get biscuit, you know, and he, he <laughs> so you throw a grenade into the Buffalo media room, just like you did to me and Jeff Hobson. <laughs> well, I, I will say this. So the next day, so the day the training camp's opening, the Buffalo news has a headline that says, Bruce Smith, will he report? Question mark. And USA Today front page has Bruce Smith with Bruce Smith comments saying Bruce Smith is not coming to training camp. <laughs> so, yeah, but, but that all kind of goes back to, you know, trying to build a network and get to know people and trying to find creative ways because you can't get that by just going to the locker room. Right. You, you may go to, to a locker room. Working yeah. relationships. Yeah, right. get people away from the building if you can. But you know what, Todd, the thing that's happened in the NFL over these years is it's more difficult to do that because it, the, it, there's more media and if you're a star player, you got to manage, you know, so much and then everybody's, you know, people have their publicists now, which yeah. can be helpful sometimes in getting to people, but it's not the same as you know, going straight to the it's source. It's not like it was in 1993 and you yeah. know, it also was not 
you know, not that way in 1993 was I think about like, I'm a few years into my career at that point. And I remember just looking around press boxes and it was pretty much all white people. Yeah. You know, and uh, I, you know, the dichotomy of that, you know, here I am covering NFL, college basketball, and I'm interviewing all these athletes who are predominantly Mm African-American and the press box is mostly white. Um, I wanted to ask you, like when you started that role, that's a national role, you know, for America's favorite sport in 1993. Did you feel any kind of pressure as an African-American because you were in such a high-profile role at that time? I, I, didn't, I don't think pressure was was um, the deal, especially in terms of being, um, you know, a black reporter. So it wasn't that, but, you know, there's inherent pressure in just trying to be good, right? And so, and then there's also the responsibility of knowing that people you know, may look up to you, other, you know, young, aspiring journalists of people of color. Um, So there's that responsibility. And there's also the insight of, you know, bringing your perspective. The one thing about, you know, you talk about diversity, and that's a great word, obviously. um, But one of the things that diversity brings you is diversity of thought and perspective. And I think that's kind of how I always looked at um, what I brought to the table as a journalist. So, yeah, you want to be good and you want to be good if you're black, green, brown, whatever. But you also have a responsibility to even tell the stories that other people may not, you know, tell and and, and, and want to tell or even have the insight to to. Um, to have the perspective, if you will. Inside might be too strong of a word, but the perspective to say, okay, what is this person feeling or how is this mm-hmm. going over with that? And so I've definitely um, made it, you know, my business to try to tell, you know, stories against a social um, backdrop, you know, and, and, you know, when you talk about um, society and just kind of how things play. But um, I don't think that there's been pressure as a, uh, as a black journalist just that directly. But again, right. there's pressure just to like <clears throat> be good <laughs> and to be right. Well, you've had, to, I mean, you had, as an African-American, you had to carry that weight much differently than I did as a white guy. I didn't have to worry about, you know, people looking at me differently just because I was surrounded by mostly white people in the press box. Yeah. You know? yeah. So that's kind of what I was, what I was thinking about was yeah, yeah. You know, thought that, you know, and you were, in some ways, a trailblazer for mainstream media. Yeah, and and, and, the, and the funny thing is, you know, it's always about um, just trying to connect with people, right? right I, I right. think one of the things, Todd, that helped me, and it helped me when, you know, I went to Michigan State, too. So Michigan State is like 40, 40 45,000 students, and it's like 3% black, right? And so, you know, being in that environment never really... Um, intimidated me and I think the reason why is because um, before I started hanging out at Olympia well actually while the time I was uh, first started hanging out at Olympia Stadium I went to a Christian school in the suburbs of Detroit mm-hmm. uh, in Gross Point. And Gross Point, if you know the history of Gross Point, uh, Michigan, it definitely was a, you know, a lily white community. And I went to school there from fourth grade through eighth grade for five years. And, you know, taking a bus from, you know, the inner city of Detroit and then going to the suburbs 
and going to school there and having, you know, white classmates and um, a Christian environment for sure, but also um, a, you know, a contrast to where I grew up. And, 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 and I could see that every single day, right? So I right. go to Gross Point in the daytime and I come home and I'm in Detroit. And um, it just really kind of helped me um, gain some, you know, some perspective, you know, some worldly perspective and to really realize and recognize how different things are for quality of life for, you know, this person versus that person um, against the, you know, like I say, a social um, backdrop. But it also allowed me to see people and to deal with people, white people, black people, right. um, young people, old people, um, in, a, in a genuine way. And so the bottom line to it is, yeah, be yourself, um, be, you know, be humble and, and try to learn from people and engage with people and all of that. But the, you know, the, the, the connection oftentimes comes in, you know, knowing that you can deal with, we all have stuff in common, right? Um, regardless, I mean, we all want to be um, healthy and we all want to be safe, you know, we want our families to be safe. You know, there's so many things that we all have in common. And I think I learned that at a, you know, at a very early age. And, and I think that helped me. Um, so, when, so yeah, so years later, you get to, you know, cover the NFL beat. Yeah, I can understand where you're coming from, you know, as a black man and some of the challenges you have. And then I can also understand this guy over here who, you know, it, it may not be um, aware of certain things that somebody else is dealing with or how they've had to deal with it. And I can can talk to him and be at ease, you know, with him, too, and find things to um you know, to have in common with a lot of people. So I think that's been something that's kind of served me, served me well throughout my life. Well, I think it certainly is a tribute to being able to see the humanity in a sport like the NFL, which is so dehumanizing. Yeah. It's a Roman gladiator sport. They wear these, you know, the equipment, the mask. A lot mm -hmm. of times you just, you just almost take it for granted. These aren't real people out there. Yeah. Um, and I think you throughout your career have been able to build those sources um, because you recognize the people behind the mask. And, yeah. Yeah. You know, and I think that's a tribute to you. No, no, thank you. And I, I think a lot of players helped me with that over the years. I remember when I covered the 49ers, and like I told you, the Cowboys, uh, you know, it was pretty cool because I kind of got an in and, you know, met some of those guys even before I got there. And But um, when I went to the 49ers and I'm trying to get established on a beat, I remember, you know, like I mentioned Jesse Sapolo earlier. I remember him and Steve Wallace and Guy McIntyre, the offensive line, they would always give me the business. And, you know, don't just come in here <laughs> sticking a microphone in my face. You ask how we're doing, <laughs> how we're right, doing right. as people. And so they would kind of force you to to do that. I'll, right. I'll give you one, one more person, Magic Johnson. So I went to uh, Michigan State and, and was a freshman with Magic, right? I met him my second day on campus. And he only stayed for two years, of course, but he had other things to do. Exactly. Um, but um, when, when he hit it, hit, well, he hit it big pretty much from the time he got to the NBA. But I remember specifically during the mid-'80s, and I was working for a radio station at that time. It was my full-time. I was still doing Cowboys Weekly part-time. I was working for a radio station full-time. But whenever the Lakers would come to town, you know, I'd try to, you know, set up or get some kind of one-on-one -on -one with Magic, right? And um, 
I remember a couple times, maybe probably, it's probably went on for about three years or so. You know, he would do the interviews with me, but he would, he would always say, before we do an interview, I want you to tell me what you're doing. What's going on with your career? How's it going? So, you know, through the years, uh, you know, like I said, it was just a few years, but, you know, I'd, I'd tell him, oh yeah, I left this, this uh, newspaper covering high schools and I'm still mm-hmm. doing the cowboy stuff. Now I'm doing radio and so on and so forth. And that was just so cool because he was, you know, the man. <laughs> you yeah, he was were, magic. Yeah, right? yeah, he was magic. And they would, and, and, but you know what, Todd? Like the other Laker players would, would see that and then they would in turn, you know, be, you know, welcoming to me, you know, and a couple of them, oh yeah, that's Magic's guy, that sort of thing. Right. Um, it's not that I was like super close to Magic when we were in college. We did have a class together and I would see him, but it's just kind of like, you know, as, as his star rose, you know, he just seemed to to really kind of remember, oh yeah, I remember this guy from Michigan State and look at him now and, and what is he doing, that sort of thing. So I always really, you know, appreciated that. Well, you've certainly throughout your career been able to shine a light on so many different people, you know, players, coaches, owners, and, and get past uh, what we, the cardboard cutout that we see sometimes and get back into the actual who are these people. And, um, you know, readers, viewers, listeners have all benefited from the great coverage. And, uh, and I know the NFL has certainly provided you an interesting life <laughs> from those days in Olympia Stadium when you thought yeah. you were going to play hockey uh, to, to oh, actually boy. spending four decades covering uh, the, you know, the NFL. Uh, I just wanted to thank you for your time, Jared. It's it's been a really enjoyable conversation with you, and I'm I know the NFL never stops. You got to start working those phones and hit the keyboard as soon as we hang this up. But uh, <laughs> I did want to thank you for this. I really enjoyed it. Oh, Todd, I appreciate you having me. It's been it's been a, a, a good deal for me as well, just and, and therapeutic, just to kind of have you know a walk down memory lane. This is cool. Thank you. All right, thanks, Jared. Take care. Thanks for listening to Press Box Access. You can find us here with a new episode every other Wednesday. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. We'd love for you to review us. Five stars would be nice. Follow us on social media. Drop us an email at pressboxaccess at gmail.com. And be sure to spread the word. Everyone is welcome here. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to executive producers Michael D'Aloya and Gerardo Orlando, producer Bill Hoffman, and our audio engineer Nathan Corson. I'm your host, Todd Jones. It's closing time. Rock on. Have you ever wanted to know how to win a Formula One Grand Prix? I mean, really know. Know about the driver tactics from the cockpit, the strategy calls from the pit wall, and even the mind games in the paddock. There's a lot more that goes into winning a Grand Prix than just 90 minutes of racing. So every week on the F1 Strategy Report, we're taking a deep dive into the decisions that shape every result. Hey there, my name is Michael Laminato, and every week I'm joined by an expert guest from the paddock to talk through the big calls that won the race and the missteps that resulted in bitter defeat. Before every race, we'll look back at the previous year's result and consult the current form guide, and we'll be in your feed after every Grand Prix, dissecting the outcome and what it means for the championship. So for your regular hit of Formula One analysis, subscribe to the F1 Strategy Report wherever you get your favourite podcasts. The Strategy Report is a beer mogul podcast on the Evergreen Podcasts Network. 
My name's Michael Laminato, and I'll catch you after the chicken flag.